Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. 96% of Grammarly users say that it helps them craft more impactful writing. Would you agree? Grammarly helped adjust my tone to navigate tough work conversations. And it works everywhere I write, so I can quickly communicate effectively. Your teammate used Grammarly to summarize an important document, making a three-pointer. How did he do it? It only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. You made an incredible slam dunk to end the game. The meeting was canceled, and your team will go home champions. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of WrestleNomics Radio. I'm Brandon Thurston, broadcasting live and on demand from Buffalo, New York, where today is Sunday, June 4th, 2023, and I'm joined today by our special co-host, MJ from NJ. Hello. Hello, Brandon. It's an honor to be on the flagship show. Uh, big shoes to fill. Uh, shout out Chris. Shout out Jesse. Uh, no pun on the fill, but um, happy to be here. Yes. Big shoes to P-H-I-L, if you will. Um, okay. So I... I've uh, we've got AEW Collision to talk about AEW Collision, an estimate on their their TV deal. What what is AEW's TV deal now that AEW Collision is a part of it? Um, and I'm going to look at how much maybe AEW Collision is going to be preempted. Whether um, have you listened MJ to the to the latest Light Shed podcast? I have. You have, of course, you have. Um, and uh, maybe will WBD bid for both WWE and AEW? David Zaslav unite the wrestling universe. We'll find out. Uh, Does the W in WBD stand for wrestling? Yes. Wrestling uh, Brothers Discovery. Um, I wrote a little bit on the Patreon uh, earlier this week or last week about um, what what AEW's deal is. And we know from talking to, to Tony on the Thursday call before Double or Nothing and then talking to him uh, after double or nothing on the, the press conference that um, AEW's TV deal is worth a little bit more now than it was before. So it's not just what, what I believe it is you know, up until now. And this is what, what the observer has reported back in January, 2020, um, $43.75 million. So about $44 million average annual value. Tony has also tweeted a reply to someone 
tr- trying to to shut someone down from criticizing AEW or something. He did tweet, "We have a multi year deal for 175 million dollars." So that all adds up with the notion that it's a 44 million dollar per year average deal. Um, and I asked him on Sunday night after Double or Nothing whether there was additional money. He said, "Yes, WBD is paying us." To, to run TV and everyone laughed. And I said, no, in, in, in addition to what you're already getting, by the way, we have, we have a, a special, a special guest here too. This is a uh, Fozzie bear who's here. Um, it's usually a three man pod. <laughs> yes. Three person he's, pod. He's, he's going to do the timestamps. Um, so we know that he, according to Tony, they're getting more money. Right. And I can't imagine that they're doing a, an, an extra weekly show that's going to cost them probably about half a million dollars per week to run. I can't imagine they're taking that really big expense on without being paid more money. So how much what I want to try to answer here is what is the new average annual value of AEW's TV deal with WBD? We know it's worth in the first place uh, forty four million dollars a year. Um, escalating each year. So the, the first year, which is now well in the past, something well under $44 million. And in the middle year, which is not quite a middle year and a four year deal, but somewhere in the middle, it's close, pretty close to $44 million. And then the last year, uh, you know, marginally over $44 million a year. So what is, the, what is the added, what is the, what is the incremental revenue that, the, that AEW is being given by WBD for running collision? We'll look at what the expense is. It's probably about half a million. I, I might be, you know, a little low there. I think Raw or SmackDown probably costs about a million dollars to put on. Maybe AW Dynamite costs a little bit less. Um, so half a million dollars might be even a little bit low. But anyway, let's say half a million dollars and let's be conservative here. Um, so let's go half a million dollars and multiply that by 52 weeks. Now I know there's not 52 weeks left in the year. There's something like 28 weeks left in the year. But 52 weeks a year times half a million dollars is $26 million per year in added expense. I got to think that AEW is getting at least enough money to cover the expense of these shows. So if you add twenty about $26 million to the current value of the deal, which is $44 million, you get to $70 million. So something like $70 million per year is their new TV deal value, I believe, uh, average annual value. And there's not that much left on this term. Um, so $70 million, how does that compare, do you know, MJ, to the current WWE deals for Raw and SmackDown? Significantly lower. Yes. So we're still, do you know what, do you know what the SmackDown deal is worth? The SmackDown deal, well, it's going to be entering the last year of it. So is it not going to be close to the 205 number? The average annual value is $205 million. Do you know what the average annual value of the Raw deal is with NBC Universal? Somewhere north of that, two uh, two sixty five. Two sixty five. That is correct. Should be should be like a, a sound effect here. Ding. Um, so we're still in a neighborhood that's like you know a, a fraction. What, what what would that be? Mm-hmm. Something like a quarter of you know. Well, rough- at two sixty five, you'd be just under twenty five percent. Sorry, just over twenty five percent. Right. And at two hundred five, you'd be. North of 50, 60, 65% of roughly. Right. So. No, I'm sorry. Below by 65, 40 would be the inverse, 45%. Yeah. A lot less anyway. A lot less. <clears throat> so this, this is sort of the, uh, what, what we're seeing here in video, if you're watching live on YouTube or on YouTube in general, this is the evolution of what has become this pretty complex deal between AEW and WBD, which started back in 2019 when 
AEW Dynamite debuted as the only show that AEW had. Do you remember when Dynamite was the only weekly TV show on linear TV that AEW had? Um, they were getting something like maybe the cost of production plus an ad revenue share. I would think if you annualize that, that comes out to like less than $10 million a year. Um, and then in January 2020, right before the pandemic, before anybody foresaw that the pandemic was going to shut down live events for about a year and a half, right before the pandemic, they got a, a new deal for four years, well, three years with an, with an option year for this current $44 million. Well, I guess it's now passed $44 million a year. Um, and that was with the addition of a one hour show that ended up being revealed as rampage at, I believe it was the following, um, maybe two years later, in fact, right. Anyway, it was revealed at a, at a, at an upfront in 2021 that it was going to be called rampage. And now we have this one hour show. Plus they got the, the battle of the belts, by the way, I don't know if Battle of the Belts is going to be continuing on here. That's just my speculation. It sort of occurred to me. Like, if you got Collision on Saturday nights, are, are, is there, have we seen the last Battle of the Belts? I'm not sure. Is, is uh, Collision the um, successor to Battle of the Belts? Is it the evolution of Battle of the Belts? Right. And it's not like this was, you know, this huge event that was key to AEW's creative and it was a huge rating success or something like that. It was basically an extra hour of Rampage. Um, so anyway... It turned into an extra hour of Rampage. The concept upon first announcement definitely had, um, as a fan of AEW, I definitely read into it. Like, hey, this could be really cool. Like a special premium linear show that features title matches, perhaps important matches. Um, Of course, it did not play out that way. But the concept itself, the initial design, um, seemed to have something to it. And we all remember that Ric Flair versus Barry Windham match uh, that happened at Battle of the Belts. Uh, great match that you can probably find on YouTube. Uh, but anyway, so they they got that that upgrade of a deal, which was more content, right? So it's not just two hours of weekly content, but also Rampage and also a you know quarterly one hour specials, um, which I kind of got the impression was sort of a bone that was thrown to them for you know AW kind of wanting to be on streaming but not getting on streaming. So. Anyway, that, that's what's happened here. And now this deal apparently has been amended. The term has not changed. Tony Khan's been pretty clear about that. And I, I asked him on the Thursday call before Double or Nothing. Dave Meltzer asked him at the press conference. The length of the deal is the same. So this is not a $1 billion new five-year deal as rumored. No. This is the same term that is apparently going to expire, assuming the option is picked up at the end of 2024. Presumably, it's possible that the deal could expire at the end of the year. I think it's pretty likely that WBD picked up the option already. Certainly, if you're signing up for a new show, a new Saturday night show, I'm thinking you're going to take it for more than the seven months here or six and a half months that are left of the year. So anyway, that's what I think. It's, it's roughly or at least $70 million average annual value. Um, I have to believe that WBD is picking up the, the option here. Um, and then I would think that what's going to happen here is we're going to see how Collision is going to perform, what kind of ratings it can really deliver, not just on the first week when, you know, on June 17th, CM Punk's finally going to be back and people are going to tune in. And then the next week, not that many people are going to be tuned in for the, the Toronto show. And then the week after that, the tape show from Hamilton, currently under 1,000 tickets out, um, how many people are going to be watching, let's say by August What's the what's the average late into the summer here? So the WBD knows what kind of rating that extra show is actually able to deliver. And then maybe they'll 
get into some real negotiations about what AEW's next TV deal may be worth. So I the have any thoughts time, about that. You, yeah. Yeah. The last time we spoke, we had, I think I had a, there was a, a super chat I had once of, um, is Warner Brothers Discovery definitely picking up that option? And I've always believed, yes, it's like picking up a great rookie on a, you know, they pick up their rookie deal and extend them for as long as you can keep it um, cost effective. I do like the idea that they are going to be able to test collision. Um, they're going to be able to test collision in a Saturday uh, time slot, a primetime time slot. I think that AEW's uh, best uh, interest is to lean very hard into making collision closer to dynamite and not rampage. And when you get to the end of at least this year, while Warner Brothers Discovery can extend into 2024 um, and, and lock up everything as constituted as is, it also gives them the option to see what the landscape is once the NBA rights settle. Um, once you see what maybe uh, they want to do with the NHL, uh, they can really evaluate the landscape of their properties and what they are able to put on what night, what ratings it does, and use AEW to its advantage as good cost-effective programming that has think- a great – Yep. You, you think that the NBA deal will be done before the, the, the AEW deal? I think by the time that the AEW deal is renewed, there will be a good understanding within Warner Brothers as to how and where the NBA is going to be distributed, where they fit into that, what nights, mm-hmm. and then perhaps you know benefiting AEW because AEW will probably go wherever Warner Brothers would like them to go as long as it's a sticky time slot. Then when you set up for that next full-term deal – they're able to sit down and come up with a real plan. Uh, and this summer and the rest of this year certainly seem to be like good testing grounds to use collision. Uh, I know when we get into next spring, we'll run into preemption. And I think that's your next slide here. So if you want to go to that. But, you know, one of the things that has played rampage is the preemption. And then we've moved around and we've seen Dynamite stay strong because it's been a constant. I think it would behoove both parties to discover what that constant can be with collision. And for now, it'll be Saturdays. But when they ultimately settle on a new long-term deal, if that's what they do, um, I'm not saying it's going to be the same construct as it is now with nights and times. And uh, I think all that's still play out. So AW Collision, well, it's, it's obviously starting right after the end of the NBA Finals, the end of Stanley Cup Finals, which are happening right now. So I think it's, you know, it's no coincidence that all this is happening just as those playoff games are coming to an end for TNT and TBS, or at least for TNT. Um, but if you look at the, I, I just, what I did is I went into the showbiz daily data and I said, give me everything that touches eight o'clock on Saturday on TNT. And this is what we get. We get, you know, so, so for things that potentially are going to push collision out of its time slot and keep in mind, I, I, I did look back on you. Dynamite has almost not been preempted. I think it was preempted once this year and that's it. Um, and I don't, nothing, you know, jumps out in, in mind to me that's like, what's going to preempt Dynamite for the rest of the year? So Dynamite seems to be pretty much in the clear here on this 8 o'clock Wednesday night TBS time slot, as opposed to TNT, where they were getting pushed around by, you know, the, the introduction of the NHL and um, March Madness and things like that. So Final anyway, basketball, yeah. right. So, so what we have here is uh, in 2022, they did put a regular season game uh, on New Year's Day on TNT Saturday at eight, the NBA all-star game. So I don't know if that will continue, but the NBA all-star game looks like it will push it, uh, in February. Um, maybe another NHL game here that I found here in late February, but then we have March madness that was on TNT on Saturday night on one, two occasions. And then NHL playoffs throughout may, uh, an NHL playoff game in June of last year, 
uh, baseball playoffs in October uh, and the match. I figured you might know something about the match. I, I do. And all of uh, well, the, match is a, the match is a property that can be moved around um, and utilized to the advantage of the schedule. Um, I think of all of these, really, it's the March Madness that jumped out at me because uh, that's such a big property and it's present across all of uh, the, the T-Nets. When I think about something like the NBA All-Star Game, that to me is a property that maybe TNT doesn't have going forward, so therefore not a consideration. And that's where I think understanding the lay of the land with the NBA distribution will be important for them making longer-term decisions as to what to do with AEW and all of its uh, brands and TV shows uh, across the nights. What is the match? The match, the match was a concept of creating golf matches made for TV, uh, not full tournaments. And was this invented they, during COVID, during the worst of the COVID uh, shutdown? Actually, nope. It actually started with the first being held out in Las Vegas between Tiger Woods and Phil Mickelson. Um, it was their brainchild and uh, quite successful at the time. Came around at the time that gambling was becoming a thing. So I remember participating and watching the first match, and you can bet on the holes between the guys. Um, it, it was really a made-for-TV uh, golf uh, program do content. You, do you partic- did you participate in sports betting around the match? Yes, I, I certainly didn't participate in the match. I participated oh, in yeah. the uh, – yeah, yeah. Um, but now going forward, they've gimmicked it, if you will. And I think the next one's going to feature Travis Kelsey and Patrick Mahomes against Steph Curry and – In golf. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and they've had Tom Brady participate. They've had Charles Barkley participate. He usually does a lot of color commentary. They've so shortened this is like their celebrity matches. Golf. Yeah, yeah. It's gimmicked. It's it's good content for uh, you know. I wouldn't say good content as in quality. I'd say it's good content to fill the airwaves with something to draw eyeballs. So it it doesn't surprise me that that, that someone who's involved in, in trading stock options is also involved in uh, in sports betting. Is there a, is there a crossover Brandon, I synergy think, opportunity I, 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 there? <laughs> I believe should, should that there Draft are a Kings, lot of people. DraftKings yeah. and Robinhood, should those two companies – are there a lot of synergies there? They're competitors, Brandon. Um, but to, to, to be honest, I actually have a, a pretty good view on – or a strong view, or not pretty good, a strong opinion that a lot of people are involved in sports betting as evident by these TV ratings we are seeing while the decline in the bundle uh, seemingly doesn't affect the rise in uh, ratings either year over year or what have you. And I draw the conclusion that um, it's driven by sports betting. Yeah. In, I mean, that, that's, 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 that's the argument. Yeah. Um, yeah. but if, if we're being more optimistic, if you look at the 2023 schedule, um, there was a soccer game, uh, in, in January and there were only, you know, year to date here. I did leave out like a couple of weeks of May. So maybe there was more here in May. Um, but there's, uh, NCAA, uh, college basketball, all-star game for the NBA and some playoff games. So say that's the the number that's like five i don't know what they'll be for the rest of the year i imagine there's going to be probably a, a baseball playoff game i guess it, it, it depends on what the schedulers want to do is if there's an open slot on tbs to put some of this sports programming maybe they would do that instead of preempting collision um but we'll see the point is i think collision is going to get preempted more than dynamite probably less than rampage though would be my expectation. So, you know, and, and we, we've got like something like seven consecutive months of Rampage. And I think that's of Rampage getting preempted. And I think that's been, among other factors, detrimental to their ratings. Uh, just not having a really stable time slot. Um, so <clears throat> the latest thought leadership from our friends at Lightshed has been the notion that, you know, uh, hey, look, Tony has confirmed that there's not a new term. There's not a new four-year deal. 
This deal is still expiring probably at the end of 2024. So that leaves perhaps Warner Brothers Discovery open to bidding among the players, bidding for Raw and or SmackDown. Um, and it was they, they, they brought it up on their most recent podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the they shouted you out. They read my tweet, yes. The other Brandon. Uh, other Brandon. And so, so they, they brought it up in, in the context of, you know, look at uh, UFC and is it, is it PFL that's on ESPN? Yeah, the Professional Fighting League. Is that the, the one that they cited? Um, yeah. So there's multiple MMA companies there under one TV roof. Could David Zasloff reunite, well, unite the wrestling world and put WWE and AEW all under one roof? And I was thinking about it. I, 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 uh, let's, let's be clear. On its face, I don't think this is going to happen. Pure but speculation. It, but it but does are we out. on a collision course for <laughs> AEW and WWE to coexist under one Turner, T-Net, Warner Brother banner? But the, the, the TV schedule, when you think about it, does kind of work out. And now Nikon has been clear that they're willing to move SmackDown around for enough money. They're willing to, to move Raw around for a lot of money. Uh, but when does the NBA air on TNT? On Tuesdays and Thursdays, right? So that and they got Dynamite on Wednesday. That's pretty successful. So that that does leave Monday and Friday open to them, I guess. Um, and of course, they've got not just TNT but TBS that some of this programming could go on. Um, true, too. Is true TV is the other. Um, yeah, but I don't think I don't think you want tr- your your Raw you, or SmackDown to be on True you, TV. You don't. But in the case of preemptions. Uh, we've seen sci-fi be used by NBCU. We've seen FS1 be used by Fox. So just the um, the idea that there are other outlets that you don't have to necessarily move time slots, you can just move stations, is something that I think uh, benefits Warner Brothers in their um, cable landscape and kind of how many shows they have, or how many networks they do have to play with. Is there any real benefit, as stated, to getting all the wrestling under one channel and... It, it, I think it was brought up in the, in the, con, in the conversation mm-hmm. that Lightshed was having, uh, that Brandon Ross and Rich Greenfield and Walt Pysik were having around. It's a, it, it, it clear, clarifies the messaging. All of the wrestling is under one, maybe not one channel, but one, one or two channels within the same family that can be cross-promoted and all of that uh, much more easily. Um, is that a real accretive benefit for, for these companies and for the network? Could be sliced and diced anyway. I mean, if you're thinking of it from a consumer standpoint, you get the benefit of consumers fully knowing this is the place I go for wrestling. Um, there's a an idea that you're going to turn over the brand into this is the home of wrestling, which may allow you to work with um, partners, strategic advertisers a little bit uh, more seamlessly because everyone knows where to go for this type of content for delivery to that uh, particular audience. On the flip side, you have to look at the fact that it would limit the audience, right? If you have the same audience tuning into your channels every single night, you're really not able to cross-promote too well to other types of programming content. Uh, if you look at the other side of the Warner Brothers um, Discovery, Discovery has, um, I would say, a lot of content and a lot of um, stations that are unfamiliar to wrestling fans or who you would think the typical wrestling fan is. So the cross-promotion can be limited. So if you have every night of the week is wrestling and that's what your audience is every single night of the week you might box yourself in a little bit your total addressable market becomes a little bit less when you're going to advertisers when you're going to try to cross brand with your other stations um so and there's consumer benefits 
there's also probably some business strategic uh, setbacks that would occur with that. Yeah, I'm not sure where NHL NHLs on Wednesday nights, but I don't know if they're on airing on Monday or Fridays. Um, yeah, the the idea that um, Zaz, I think, as you know, he's known, it would move away from live sports and into pro wrestling um, is interesting to me because you probably can design a, a strategy that includes both, encompasses both, and work the wrestling around. Um, because we've seen wrestling fans willing to kind of migrate what 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 nights they watch something. Uh, and he clearly time, he, wa- he wants yeah. more AEW. Tony said, and he wants more AEW. And I was going to say at the same his time, idea. You have to do the. There's a lot of ideas coming from executives pitch to wrestling executives these days. Well, uh, I, Vince, I think I, th- I think and I, Tony I can and, see WBD in in their they want cheaper programming, more economical Bingo. programming. That's they've gone on there you know, with Gunnar Weidenfels, who's the CFO of WBD, and they've talked about how they want to have cost discipline. They don't want more. They want better. They don't want to have spend on all this content that we've seen be the, the, the trend in, in media business throughout the last decade or so. But they want to make wise investments you know, in, in, in less content, but content that's going to be more economical. And mm. wrestling is, you know, wrestling, when I, when I do like the – when I, when I look at the ratings and say how much are they being paid, you know, relative as a factor of how much they're, they're delivering, uh, AEW is the biggest one in terms of being seemingly under-monetized relative to what they deliver as a rating. But even WWE is too, rel- certainly relative to the bigger sports properties, it is. Yeah, and that's where I was going to go with this. You have to do the calculus of what is the, what is the replacement cost. Obviously, Zaz has also said he's moving away from scripted programming. Which, okay, if it's not going to be all in on live sports, it's not going to be scripted programming. Here is a happy medium that is very cost effective. It outperforms in terms of the ratings that it brings you. Um, and, and it's definitely an area to kick the tires on in terms of whether or not that's a viable strategy to use more of that to fill your, your programming slate. Um, okay. Any other thoughts there? I don't think so. Um, I might write something about that this coming week um, for. Uh, subscribers. Uh, by the way, if you want to c- contribute a super chat, if you want to have your question or, or comment addressed here, uh, feel free to submit a super chat if you're watching live today on YouTube. Um, I came across this account. Someone brought this to my attention at touring data on Twitter uh, has is tweeting. Apparently, I mean, not it's wrestling. They almost never tweet wrestling, but are tweeting all sorts of concert uh, event business data, including revenue for live gate have, have you been following the concert industry uh this past year past not, summer not or really. leading into this summer oh, i'm aware that i'm aware that, I'm aware that t- taylor swift is a huge draw though and live nation is you know they're beating their 2019 numbers yes um so in average ticket prices through the roof right which i think we have a, a slide that we'll get to in a moment um so they tweeted this this set of data for um double or nothing $964,000, $964,000 in live event revenue in, in, in revenue for ticket sales. Um, so I don't know where this data is coming from. I did DM the, um, Oh, MJ's gone. I did DM the, uh, the, the account to ask, is it, is this, you know, based on ticket audits or whatever? Um, I didn't get a response, but I did ask someone who would know how AEW double or nothing performed. And I was told that, this is approximately correct, the numbers that we're seeing here. I would point out, though, that 100% tickets sold is obviously not accurate. There, this was not a sellout. Um, as people may have seen the, the pictures that I tweeted, you've got 
clearly there were a number of open seats. Um, so not a sellout, but I could believe that maybe 10,478 was close to the, the, the paid ticket sales. Um, an average ticket price is $92. Anyway, I mean, the moral of the story here, under a million dollar gate, I mean, that's what we believed. I believe the Observer has reported something in the neighborhood of $700,000 for the live gate. Um, so there's that. But they also tweeted WrestleMania, um, and that's nine, $9.5 million for a live gate for day one, $10.2 million for a live gate for day two. Um, and... Can you turn your, your volume down a little bit? I'm getting a little bit of uh, feedback. Oh, my apologies. I did switch my, my connection here. Okay. So so this, com- this comes out to, I believe, 19 points. Is it $19.7 million? What's, uh, what's 9.5 plus 10.2? It is 9.5 plus 10.2. $19.7 million. And we know WWE in their press release announced $21.6 million for the live gate. So, I mean... That probably includes fees, assuming this is accurate. Um, $19.7 million is probably without the fees, and I would think $21.6 million, as WWE announced, is with the fees. So this all seems plausible. If you look at the, the number of tickets that they got for for the paid ticket sales, 63000 for day one, 64000 for day two. That's consistent with WrestleTix estimates of tickets out being – about 67,000 for each day, uh, with day two being slightly higher than day one. So it's a, it's a bigger difference, presumably in, in tickets sold versus tickets out, uh, for, for day two, but day two being, being bigger, you know, uh, slightly higher average ticket price, slightly higher tickets sold for that Roman versus Cody match, apparently. Do you have the historical averages for WrestleMania's prior years um, and, and I guess how far back? Because one of the big trends, obviously, in this uh, live event space now is the uh, explosion in, in price, and both due to inflation but also due to demand in the experience economy now. Um, and something that I think is definitely a, a tailwind in helping uh, facilitate live event business in WWE. Are you asking like the historical average ticket price for WrestleMania? Yeah, sure. I guess how this compares and uh, increases kind of uh, over time. So let's share this. Uh, make this bigger so people can see it. Um, so this is uh, getting bigger. Okay. So this is last year. About $159 was WrestleMania last year. And then we have I, – I could probably find the, the 2021. I'm sure I could find the 2021 COVID uh, year. But let's skip over that because I don't have that here. But 268 for the 2019 WrestleMania, 235 for 2018, 223 for 2017. And it's, it's going to get smaller as the years go back. Um, this is actually the opposite of what I maybe would have expected to see, which was an increase in pricing. This is going, going back. It was lower. Going towards the present, it's higher. I'm sorry. I'm misreading how you're – okay. Keep scrolling. I'm just – I'm going in reverse chronological order Got gotcha. you. 2000, gotcha. 2008, it's about – This is exactly then what I would, yeah. w- would expect to see. I apologize as you were 2008, scrolling. let's go way back. 2008, $93 average ticket price for WrestleMania. Um, and then it gets higher, a little bit, little bit up and down, but it gets higher and higher. It goes over, over $100 at about tw- you know, the early 2010s or so. And then once we get to mid-late 2010s, let's say late 2010s, we're into WrestleMania 32 with you know in, in Arlington with the 100,000 attendants supposedly, and we get over 200 dollars for the average ticket price, and uh, 
and then our average ticket price for this. Now that we're splitting it into two days, right. you know, that has lowered the average ticket price, more volume to sell here. So the tickets right. have gotten cheaper, expecting you to buy two tickets. Obviously, if you want two days, you can kind of add, add these $150 up, you know, times two, and that's like $300 Three, right. okay. to, to go to both events. Yeah. Yeah. So do I have, is this where we have the, uh, I guess we'll, we'll, we'll touch briefly on AW Collision. Now that CM Punk has been officially announced as being on AW Collision on June 17th at the United Center, tickets distributed for this 13,000 seat building or so, this 13,000 setup. I know WrestleTix has it at 10,000, but I'm sure they could open it up even further. Uh, 7,600 is, is what it's at, and this was as of Thursday. So not as of today, Sunday, but as of Thursday, the announcement of CM Punk has appeared to move around 600 tickets. Um, so we'll see. Do you believe news? Do you believe news coming out today will further increase this given the timing? What news today? Well, so, uh, my understanding, I did not wake up to watch it, but in, uh, in Japan today, there were a few big matches, uh, announced. Seems like they're going to be, uh, forbidden door, I believe a week or so after this collision event. Um, and I do wonder whether or not, New Japan stars will be on this collision. Were there uh, forbidden United, door matches announced? I do believe Omega and Osprey is now confirmed. Right? Did I wake I, up I, and you, misread you everything? I, I just not. Um, and I do believe Brian Danielson will be facing Kazuchika Okada. Okay. Um, why why would that I, affect collision ticket sales, though? Collision is taking place on June 17th. I believe Forbidden Door is on June 26th, the following 25th. week. 25th? 25th. So, you know, a week before, this is probably one of the bigger go-home shows you will have for that. This is probably in the biggest arena you'll be in before that show. I would think you want star power on your very first collision. You have two hours of content to fill. Uh, you bring in an Okada. You bring in uh, Brian Danielson in addition to CM Punk. Um, you certainly don't know what CM Punk's role on Forbidden Door will be, but perhaps a, a, a Hiroshi Tanahashi or some big name like that. And all of a sudden, this uh, United Center has a lot of um, star power in it and perhaps takes this to the uh, the rest of the way to the current setup at the very least. If not, they expand that current setup. As a prospective consumer, I'm not convinced that like I'm going to see Tanahashi or Okada on this show on Collision. Yeah. No. Yeah, maybe. But but not currently. Yeah. Um, I would think that we didn't as of last week we did not know we'd see cm punk on this show and well i think we knew but we did <laughs> i think we know we are going to see new japan stars heading into um forbidden door where and how they're utilized i don't know i think we did last year as well certainly in go homes uh for forbidden door was a dynamite where stars were appearing um and they were introducing more uh new japan talent jay white um so yeah. uh what else do we have here dominion last night uh, had they, they announced the attendance this was at, it. <laughs> yeah Dominion announced the attendance at seven thousand seven thousand and forty, which is higher than last year by about a thousand, which was just over six thousand so uh Osaka Joe Hall, same venue, same event, always at Osaka Joe hall so their their attendance was better um, i didn 't look back into further for the years like twenty twenty one because I imagine it was more of a limited capacity um, but there 's that um then we have a market-to-market comparison, more, more live events. The moral of the story here is that in May, positive trends continue for WWE and live events, despite the return of Vince McMahon to ruin creative again. Um, we've got basically almost every market-to-market comparison that I can make across common event types was positive for WWE. Albany Raw, 
positive. Um, Fayetteville, North Carolina, with with the I don't want to say false advertisement, the accidental or maybe uh, gone back on gone back whoopsies. on adver- advertising <laughs> of um, of Roman Reigns. Um, that was way up, but maybe that's just okay. They there's an advertising error or uh, change in decision there. Okay, Greensboro Coliseum, Raw, up sixty seven percent. North Charleston, South Carolina, house show up. Augusta, Georgia, house show up fifty percent. Knoxville, Tennessee, SmackDown, up sixty eight percent. Jacksonville, Florida, in the belly of the beast. W Raw up forty four percent. Um, and you've got Fort Worth, Texas, where they did a Raw. I don't have a Raw to compare it to since the return to touring, but I do have a SmackDown to compare it to. It's up 10,600 versus 8,500 on the, the SmackDown. And obviously, this is a month that also included the uh, the San Juan Puerto Rico events that you know did did pretty huge business there. Um, and this is where I would be um, keenly interested to understand the uh, ticket pricing strategy. We saw live events become a profitable segment within the WWE um, business reportings mm-hmm. of the earnings. So for me, it's okay. Are they able to drive higher ticket prices with the increased attendance? Is it the increased attendance alone that's driving this? Um, certainly the efficiencies and um, scaling of production costs as they travel city to city, they've been doing this for how long now? And they learned probably a lot coming out of the pandemic of how to keep costs a little tighter. So that's where, um, you know, I think you're starting to see a lot of tailwinds push that WWE um, live event business revenue and profitability. So average ticket price, domestic ticket price in the U.S. and Canada has anyway, – I, 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 this is based on WWE's reporting, which they report every quarter. It's a little bit skewed because Q2 or whatever quarter that WrestleMania is contained in always – drives everything way up, including average ticket price, including attendance. And they don't break that it for certainly for average ticket price. They don't break that out. Um, right. Maybe I could, maybe I could back that out, but anyway. I, I, yeah, it's hard to calculate, hard to back. And it also very market to, uh, specific dependent. Um, you're probably going to be able to drive higher prices in certain markets than others. So what I did here, what, what we're seeing for people watching in video is I, I, this is a trailing four quarter average trend line is what we're looking at here is to try to adjust for that to adjust for the fact that one quarter out of the year is going to be way higher than the rest because of WrestleMania in any case. Uh, and then I adjusted this for inflation to $2023 and, you know, look at the light green line there and it's, it's up and to the right beginning in 2006 where it's around just over $50 was the average ticket price in today's dollars. And I mean, it was in, in those days, dollars was about $35. You could get into a WWE show for an average ticket price of $35 or in today's dollars about 50. And now it's up to $80 in today's dollars or maybe more like 75. The, you see that the, the first quarter uh, in return to touring drove this way up. So they really priced tickets high at the beginning of the return to touring in July, 2021. Naturally with demand. Pent right. up demand. Pent up demand. So you can naturally drive pricing through. T- yep, Exactly. And do you believe that they came out of the pandemic when they came back to touring with a much better uh, cost structure on their live events, right? Did they learn things when they were producing TV um, in isolation and say, okay, we can do certain things that are more uh, cost effective that would combat maybe the inflation that was being felt and being seen? Because we haven't really seen that be a drag on that live event business. Um, you know, and, and I would think that while attendance is up, Ticket pricing is up. If costs were up too, it may not be the profitability that we are seeing. 
So what I do in my when I estimate WB's uh, financial reports, I do a live event operating expenses per the number of events that they run. So I guess the the answer to that if if the answer to that question is yes, if the, the you know the question is is are is WB running events more efficiently? Are they are they running more running their events at a lower cost? then I would expect this number, I'll share it here. Um, I would expect, I've got to make this way bigger because this, this is small stuff. I so love these, the WrestleNomics spreadsheets. This is the operating expense. This is the selling and marketing expense. Um, this is in millions. So what we're looking at here is like, you know, 4 million per event. Is that right? Yes, because that's WrestleMania. Um, we're, we're talking like 300,000 per event, 400,000 per event. So, so what you want to, ask here is what if we go back in time here and let's say 2019 where it was costing them you know in in live event operating expense so i take the total of what they actually report for for live event operating expense and then i just divide it by the number of events that they reported that they ran and we get you know something in the neighborhood of three hundred thousand dollars that they're spending in operating expense um that's not including the marketing expense which is another several tens of thousands of dollars so it's not that that big of of a difference right but uh, so something in the neighborhood of 300 getting towards $400,000 per event in live event operating expense. Okay. So what are they doing now? They're in Q1. They were, they report about the same and maybe that's with inflation over that time. You could say maybe that's uh, more efficient. It's pretty good. If the, yeah, I would think so. Um, and I think especially if you're adding increased attendance on top of a pretty consistent number from prior to pandemic, uh, that's a good win. That's a very good um, – I'd give them high marks on that business turnaround with the live event business. Uh, and I think that that continues to get better over time um, as they continue to further their reach with their audience, which seems to be growing, getting younger, and they implement new creative strategies that draw people to these events. Yeah. And, and, and to this point, the point you brought up earlier, I mean we can go back in time and say look at operating income just for the live events division – so that is the answer to the question, are live events profitable? We know with media and all these you know, enormous TV rights fees that you get from NBC Universal and Fox and other part- partners that you're a very profitable business. But if you isolate the live events business and look at operating income, this was a division that outside of WrestleMania quarters like this one was losing money, right? It was losing you know, a couple million dollars in, in, in a quarter in some years, Um this is 2020, so let's not look at that too seriously. But we can go back to 2018, and we can find you know some of these quarters you know thinly making a profit or losing a million dollars. And but if people in- remember, this was definitely something that was trending poorly to the point where Vince wanted to reimagine what yes. live events would be. It was definitely uh, an eyesore in their report in their earnings each quarter. It was something headed in a direction where it needed to be reimagined. So. And we can see, see here in, in 2022 and the first quarter of 2023, and then we got this this big quarter here in Q2. That's because of WrestleMania where they made $13,000, million in operating income. But every other mm-hmm. quarter, I mean, that, that Q4 came pretty close, but they it, made $300,000 in operating income. Q3 is going to be also skewed now with the advent of SummerSlam being in a stadium. And this I think they did. Clash of the Castle that helped here too. Oh, that was Clash of the And when was SummerSlam then? Um, same. Also same. in the, right. So hey, August? No, that's Q3. Yeah, Q3. So not only are they able to – I think Q4 is a great 
quarter to examine this because you do have um, the live touring around the holidays. And we know right. that's consistent. We also know that they don't have um, the PLE in Saudi Arabia included in this number here, I don't believe. No. Um, so this is a All pretty clean quarter the, to compare that, that year over year. $50 million goes, goes into the media bucket, not the live event bucket. So if you just looked at the fourth quarter year over year, you'd be able to see kind of that real core – going to the markets, going to the lower, um, going to smaller metros, going to the local fan base, that business, that business that we used to think of as their live touring business, not clouded by all the PLEs in the stadiums. And um, yeah, it's a turnaround in, in the face of inflation, um, in the face of a potential recession, vibe session, whatever anyone wants to call it. Um, that's a pretty good mark to be at from 2022 and then now heading into 2023 where they're able to just turn a profit. Because if you want to think about live events as the cost of getting to your customer, right? That's the most um, direct way that they're going to get in front of people who maybe have never been to an event. You and Jesse have talked about at an event. Like what, what purpose does live events serve? And at the very least, in a case of WWE, a more mature business, they can't be losing money there. If you're losing money there, why are you doing it? Because look at all the other areas that you're being so successful in, right? AEW is in a more nascent state. They need to invest in getting to that audience. It's okay to maybe lose money in the live touring. But I would say for WWE, break even is the bare minimum. You know, from an investor standpoint, you want to see that as a bare minimum. And this is a nice turnaround there in the face of what I would have thought would be rising costs. And we should note this, this may be the biggest factor of all, is that they're running fewer house shows. If we look at, look back in 2017, mm-hmm. where they're running 60, 70, house shows per quarter. They did run only 50 some odd, but they did start to cut, cut down on that in 2019. I think when, you know, in, in response probably to the lack of profitability in the live events division. Um, and now, you know, fully up and running again, only 20 to 30 house shows per quarter here. I mean, that's, they've, they've cut that and, basically in half. And that's not to say that, oh, they cut them in half. So look, they're not losing this money. That is a strategy. They have chosen to do less house shows in a way to drive this segment um, to profitability. I think that's a nice – you can't discount when a company undertakes a strategy to achieve something um, and then say, oh, it's because they run less shows, right? You can't hand wave that when it's an obvious conscious strategy for them to try to do this. Okay. okay. So – Brandon, how do I sound and how's my connection now that I had to flip over? You sound very good. Okay. Um, in AEW land – um, we don't ha- obviously they, they run a lot fewer events. So there's fewer comparisons to make here. Uh, new markets still. San Diego was a new market for them. Uh, Austin, Texas was a new market for them. Uh, house shows happened. Two more house shows. Um, one did one in Salem, Virginia did 2,100. Another one in Corbin, Kentucky did 1,600. Uh, they did some this this weekend. I don't have the numbers in front of me, and I don't know if that WrestleTix has given them given those a final count yet. In any case, Las Vegas, yes. I was going to ask, did you see that Darby Allen skateboard trick? No. When I saw it on the end, oh, it was impressive. But go ahead. Sorry. Las I Vegas. house show last night, so yeah. Las Vegas, double or nothing, was down 20% according to WrestleTix count versus the double or nothing of last year, which was over 13,000 tickets out for double or nothing 2022. This, this year, 10,500. So down 20%. Um, and the dynamite was down 8% from the previous dynamite in Las Vegas as well. Uh, Detroit, Michigan for dynamite down 36% from the previous dynamite in June of last year, which is probably the blood and guts event. Um, and Baltimore was up Baltimore dynamite in May, May 3rd. It was up 21% from the previous dynamite they did in Baltimore, which only did 
2,700 apparently in November uh, of, of last year. So there's that. Mostly, some story here is mostly negative stories, market to market for Dynamite. Mostly positive stories for WWE. Um, and we're getting to the point here, you know, we're not, not in this month of May, but in the, the previous two months, April and March, Dynamite was averaging a lower tickets distributed from WrestleTix than house shows were. Uh, this does include some international house shows. Uh, but SmackDown, and I know SmackDown did a double taping uh, because of travel to Saudi Arabia. So they did three SmackDown tapings here rather than four, or maybe even five. But this was the highest average for a month since the return to touring for SmackDown, do- doing around 12,000 out for SmackDown in May, which is higher than any, any average that we've got here in this chart, which includes SmackDown, Raw, Dynamite, and House Shows. So that's, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting to, to look at how correlated apparently in, in, in some of this time Raw and SmackDown are where they're moving up and down. Maybe that has somewhat to do with the markets that they're going to. Uh, I haven't looked deeply into it. But it's a, it's a positive live event story still for WWE. The TV ratings continue to be pretty positive. Um, and despite, you know, Vin, Vince is back in creative, and I know there may be a delay with if, if Vince is impacting, you know, if, if the creative is getting worse and if, if fans are tuning out of WWE, you would probably see that in a more delayed uh, trend with live events because a lot of the tickets are bought when they go on sale at first. Uh, nonetheless, these are still performing, you know, there's still some action, I'm sure, happening towards the end of these events on the day of the event. And they're still performing better than, you know, the, the event as a whole is still performing better than, than the events of the past. And TV ratings certainly wouldn't be a delayed effect in, in that way, right? You decide in that moment whether you're going to turn the TV on or not. And TV ratings are doing pretty strongly as well. Um, when, when would you like me to eat crow on the TV ratings? How about now? now? Or should I? Okay. How about now? Last well, I want, <laughs> Go ahead. You go. And then I want to make a broader point about, um, well, Go ahead. I want to make a broader point about the two companies that are not comparing them, but looking at them in terms of where they are as businesses. But talk about the ratings because the ratings play into that tremendously. Most recently, Friday night, Fox. No more NBA to go up against. All that NBA competition out of the way, finally. Fox, SmackDown, 1,000 days for Roman Reigns. And Knowledge. this, and this uh, we don't have the final yet. The final will come out on Monday afternoon. Nielsen delays notwithstanding. But uh, this this looks to have done 2.5 to 2.6 million viewers, which is on the level of if you can see my mouse here. This this is this thick purple error bar is is where I project the final to be for Friday night's SmackDown. And if you look at this one back here, that that's very high. This is the Cena SmackDown at December 30th, where he came back and did this big rating. Um, it's in that neighborhood. So this is going to be perhaps the most watched SmackDown of the year. Uh, in 2023 so far we'll see what happens on the final i don't i'm not aware of any preemptions that would have given us a misleading reading here um and it's the and and programminginsider.com has reported the fast affiliates for each half hour we don't have labels yet here well i imagine we'll have a quarter hour report down the line here so so what we have is not quarter hours but half hours um and this is in fast affiliate so figure these are all about going to end up probably around five to six to nine percent higher, maybe four percent. They're going to end up a little bit higher than this. So don't don't put this on the aggregators. But to, to give you an idea of how the show trended throughout the show, I think this is pretty reliable. And what we see here in the last half hour, which contained the Roman Reigns 1000 Day Celebration, 
this this peaks as the show goes on. The, the, the audience starts out, you know, lower and ends up higher uh, with, you know, 2.7 million viewers measured by the Fast Affiliate. So figure that's going to be, you know, getting close to – it's going to be under 3 million. Okay, let's not get crazy here. But it's getting close to 3 million, um, maybe 2.8 million, something like that. Um, the demo grew 13% from the prior 30 minutes in the last half hour. Grew 9% in the last half hour from the prior 30 minutes. So um, no Sami Zayn here. So you can't say, well, this was, it's not really Roman Reigns who's a draw here. It's really this, the Sami Zayn storyline. Well, it's the storyline overall. <laughs> and, and it's, uh, I think Roman, it, Roman it has to be acknowledged. There's nothing else you can say. Acknowledge him. Yes, as, as Roman Reigns looked into the camera and uh, wanted to be acknowledged as, as, as the draw that, that he is. Uh, um, uh, so, so there's that. Um, TV ratings overall, though, I mean, um, if, I, if I look at the, the big spreadsheet off on my, on my other screen here, um, TV ratings in May for Raw and SmackDown. Total viewership was up 9% in May versus the prior year for SmackDown. Raw was up 4%. The demo was up 20% for both. NXT was also up 20%. Um, Dynamite was down. So, How's that uh, NXT demo? The, the demo is up 20% in May versus the prior year. Oh, sorry. You were quoting the demo. Right. Okay. Sorry. You were saying the demo. Um, it's a tremendous turnaround for um, what had become an aged uh, audience. I think for a long time we had been seeing it be carried by 50 plus, And now we are seeing a really healthy increasing demo for the first time in what might be two, three generations where the growth in viewership is coming from the younger audience. Um, after I mean, we, long, to, yeah. to, to that point, we, we really want to look at here is, is look at what we're looking at here on, in video is we're going all the way back I and mean, we can scroll quite a ways back. Here. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can see, so here's Ron Smackdown, right? And it's, it's been positive year over year differences. When you compare the given month to the same month of the prior year, we've got positive differences, at least yeah, January, not so positive for SmackDown, but it's mostly positive differences. And if, okay, it's mostly positive differences, but we go, if you scroll way back here, um, it's actually more positive than I expected. And that's SmackDown because, you know, SmackDown's been moved to Fox. Where it's the dis- distribution there is going to skew that a bit. Yeah. But if we look at like, you know, I guess we can go way, way back for Raw and we can see, you know, a lot of negative trends here in 2018, let's say for one thing. Um, I bet I have this going even further back. We should do, do something really dangerous and see if I can populate these. these I'm hard here. pressed to think of a time when the growth in the demo came from, or the growth in total viewership came or was supported by the demo. Um, probably wasn't looking even, at ratings when Cena was coming up, but it's even bigger in the younger half of the demo. If we look over here, this is 18 oh, to 34, yeah. and it's up 30 yeah. percent in May, up 30 percent for SmackDown in April. So, and and, and NXT. This is going to be artificially volatile, I think, because we're, we're dealing with a small sample for a smaller audience in NXT. But NXT is way up in the younger half of the demo as well. But even still, when NXT um, first debuted, it did probably appeal to an older audience who had been watching it on the network. Um, if you just think of the composite and the demographic of who was a subscriber to the network um, and who was watching Raw and who was watching SmackDown when it was uh, pre-Fox. Uh, I think the composite was definitely an older demographic. Uh, it skewed to the higher end of uh, whether it Wouldn't was... Wouldn't the streaming demo- audience yeah. be, be inherently younger? Because The WWE's streaming audience, I would think, would reflect what the audience was watching the product on linear. 
Um, I don't know that to be for sure. I would think that was who was probably subscribing to the network and then making NXT uh, popular on the network. Um, I don't know case, that I have that data, but it was aligned with The audience it. has gotten younger if we look at the median age trend here. It's getting close to what the SmackDown age is, which mm-hmm. is getting a little, bit, a little bit older in recent months, in fact. But as we've mentioned before here, Raw is now younger than the, than the Rampage audience. Raw is now younger than the Rampage audience. Dynamite is still the youngest show of all, though. So I, I think, what, what does this mean? I, I feel like this means something, but I'm not really, I can't really articulate it. It, 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 it means something like relevancy. I, I feel like, you know, the, because TV ratings are so skewed to be older naturally, mm-hmm. you know, the average TV viewer at any given moment is something like 60 years old, um, that you've actually got younger people who are more fickle when it comes to TV. I'm not just being a, 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 an old millennial here saying that, but young, younger TV viewership is harder to retain. And when you see big increases in viewership, say for a, for a big episode like the CM Punk return on Rampage, massive increase in younger viewership. I think just, just younger viewers are more selective with the time that they give to traditional TV. And I think younger viewers are making their way to the product. Uh, let's say the core product here is the, the TV shows, Raw, SmackDown, um, Dynamite, and Rampage Collision. I think younger audiences – are brought into the product vis-a-vis, like you said, streaming or video on demand content, um, YouTube, certainly, uh, the network effects that the social media, uh, platforms all play in kind of introducing things to younger audiences, because we know that's where younger audiences are. And then if it's relevant, then if it hits, then it's, if it, if it, if it really draws the eyeballs, you're now seeing that, um, in what is a younger audience watching on linear, which is really uh, amazing because you don't see that across many other linear cable programming. Uh, but you are seeing what seems to be a, a generation long investment in trying to get their, they talk about the, the, the AVOD numbers and they talk about how many people, the impressions in the social media world, whether it's TikTok, YouTube, and it's not monetizable, but what is monetizable are these upcoming TV rights that if you work hard enough to introduce your product to that younger audience and if you do the right things with that creative, with that content, with those stars to bring them in to watch your product and you can turn your demographic from being an older demographic into a younger demographic and you show that ability to, de- to, to deliver that audience to advertisers, boom, there's your monetization. And that is where we may start to see um, – I'll say justified increases on those TV deals because it's not just, well, this is what people watch on cable. It's also they are showing the ability to bring us younger viewers by way of their content across all the platforms. And to me, that is a real success story and what they've been able to do. Now, a lot of it benefited by Hunter's creative uh, or by change in perception as to who is in charge of things. By Vince's creative. Vince is the one who's really in charge change in perception as to who is in charge of things. But um, even prior to Vince leaving last summer, right, they had always been talking about reaching consumers where they are, whether that be Facebook, when they tried the Facebook Live, whether that be YouTube. Um, And we may talk about how monetizable that is, but I think you're seeing that strategy now really have dividends uh, and it couldn't happen at a better time with these TV rights upcoming. Two things. Do you have any positions currently in W stock? And secondly, are you still a bear on WTV rights? I have several lottery ticket options. That is <laughs> on WWE. Yeah. So if they come out with two XTV rights, lotto tickets, right? But I am not, I don't have any, I don't own any shares and I am not um, 
trying to gauge where WWE is going one way or the other. It's literally like playing a lot of few options for way out into like the 120s in case there's some massive TV TV rights surprise as there was in 2018. So Nikon, um, if you're listening, you can make MJ rich if you do a good job. <laughs> rich is a bad term to use, but look, I think that WWE content has always been um, forgot about in the mainstream conscious when it comes to these TV rights. Now, after 2018, it is certainly not the case anymore. Talk about light shed. They talk about pretty regularly. Talk about all the other sports media uh, podcasts and, and outlets that cover it. It's no longer a secret, right? But in the event that it still surprises, that's why I call them lottery tickets. Now, as your other question, am I bearish on the TV rights? Uh, based on the stock price, 1.5 is a given. Um, anything less would be extremely disappointing and I think be significantly harmful to the start of TKO. But yeah, if 1.5 is the given, I think it comes in around 1.5, 1.7, and I am no longer bearish as I was thinking that they would not get a renewal. I think the renewal will come in. Who's going to buy? Who's going to buy Raw and SmackDown? Well, different topic, but I believe that that renewal uh, for increased rights will be justified by way of the lower, the 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 younger demo that is now watching the shows. Uh, I think it'll be justified by ways of splitting up the. Um, the rights, whether it be next day or whether it be packaged in the case of NBCU with a um, coterminous deal with uh, Peacock um, and the PLEs. So I think there are ways that you can get to that. And I, you know, after watching and listening to a lot of things about the NBA rights, that's how they're going to be able to get a significant increase is by carving up distribution. I think WWE also creatively get increases, but it takes more and more for it to be justified. So I think that's, you know, I don't, I won't walk off the ledge of sports rights are in a bubble. I will say that they are being creatively justified by partners who recognize that we have to do something to, uh, you know, make sure we retain the content, but also that the content is um, providing us multiple uh, opportunities here to, to, to have it at a reasonable price. Yeah. I, I, th- I think we are coming to- near to the plateau of TV r- sports TV rights being explosive. Um, at the JP Morgan conference, Nikon talked about, taking the NBA's lead and, you know, selling TV rights to multiple partners. That's what they did in 2018, not just NBCU, but also SmackDown Fox. He, he made it sort of offhand a comment. He said something to the effect of, we're thinking we can maybe split it even more ways than that. What is he talking about? He's well, talking think, about selling to three different partners. How would that work? I think we need to read, um, not read into what he says. So literally, but think conceptually what it could look like. Um, he could be talking about next day rights. He could be talking about exclusive content for other um, platforms that want it. Maybe not Raw, maybe not SmackDown, maybe something like a main event that can wind up on a, uh, sh- you know, in a streamer somewhere. And they kind of try to build that up into something more than it already has been, um, which is frankly nothing. But they keep do- they keep producing it. So it's got to be, you know, for some reason. And he's satisfying and- international commitments. Right, of course. And, and does that present opportunity then to create something domestically with that? And, you know, the third hour of Raw has always been this taboo thing that fans don't like, but has to exist because of uh, the revenue it brings. And can they do something with that on Peacock and make it a little bit more mature? Or can they do a, a, something with uh, SmackDown adding a third hour somewhere? I think there's a lot of ways they can split the rights or further monetize what they have to offer. Um Again, it's creative, and it's a way to justify for the buyers, um, why are we spending all this money? Um, 
and how, what are we getting for it, right? Both sides want to feel like they're getting something out of this. And I think for the buyers, the distributors, uh, they want to feel like they have more because they're paying more. And it's a weird way of thinking about it. But hey, if we're going to pay you more, we better we, we want something else too. We want extra. More um, content. Right. And that's what WBD is, is apparently doing with, with AEW. Saying, exactly. don't, don't just give us three hours. Give us five. Exactly. And so Nick Khan probably has a couple ideas of how they can go to market with that strategy. And I'm three sure hour SmackDown, five a, hour Raw, a, a two hour Raw with a third hour third of NXT. Hour somewhere. There's a lot of ways you can do this. Um, and we've seen them try to do this before, right? They did do some kind of rights deal for the mix match challenge with Facebook. Um, we've seen them try to explore this where they try to build up brands um, that whether or not they're critically acclaimed, fans like it or not, um, to the degree they bring eyeballs and to the degree that they are able to create new ways to bring eyeballs, um, it's worth trying, especially if you can get paid for it. He, he talked about after the deal is over, notably, about maybe another show that would you know appeal to the Latin American market in some sort of – he used the words lucha libre. Mm-hmm. So I mean – and it was – brought up in the context of like how do you think about creating more content or or you know growing and he talked about nights of the week and you know if if we had it our way we'd have content every night of the week i mean they have monday as, as it's composed now they have monday friday tuesday and you could put something on wednesday certainly or thursday thursday is the most open one i, I suppose um but if, if there's a new tv brand that sounds like it but he's, he's putting that after this tv deal so it's not something they're going to deliver as part of this TV deal, it sounds like. It could be something that is to come after the TV deal, but um, an option or, or a um, the, the first right of refusal that a lot of these networks have where they, hey, we're going to see this first, and if we don't want it, then you can shop it elsewhere. But maybe that's built into the contract where NBCU is going to get the first rights at everything, and if they want to pass, then they can shop it. Something like that where, again, just to justify an increase here in this environment, um, where at least there, there's, there could be more coming. Again, after the initial deal. Uh, w stock price, just the five. This is the one-year picture. This is the five-day picture. Uh, w, w didn't have a great week for, for its stock price. Neither did Endeavor. But they were basically flat. Uh, there were some down days and some up days. Anyway, it, it, it finished basically it, where it started during the week. There's a lot of activity there going on probably with the M&A, um, kind of the hedging, de-hedging, things of that nature that would take place around any M&A What's transaction. happening with the volume? Do you have, do you have any conspiracy theories? Volume's back low. No, it's low. Um, at least it was low when I saw it. I was in New York all week, so I really was not in front of the, the charts or anything. I was actually doing other things. And uh, I think there's probably going to be uh, – it's going to stay pretty stable here until we get closer to the close of the transaction and or things start to percolate with the TV rights. Um, and I think that you probably saw it come back a bit as a hedge against what if the TV rights are not what is baked in, which I would say, and you've said before, 1.5. Um, and as Nick was out doing the rounds and as the, the upfronts were happening and there was maybe a lack of uh, visibility for the WWE at NBCU, if I understand correctly, that you know maybe people just said, oh, maybe it's and not going to be – And Fox. I mean, so, so what happened yeah. here, and this is something that Lightshade talked about a couple of weeks ago, yeah. is that apparently there was a meeting – between Endeavor people and their investors, where they basically told the investors to basically brace yourselves for Fox not making a strong bid on WWE. So that, and then the next day was, I, I believe, the Moffat Nathanson conference, and 
Nick in, in did not ad- you know directly address that obviously, but but he, he's this is when he said 1.5x that under promise over deliver. We hope it's going to be more than that. But we're still going to get a great deal, um, and that's where I think the market said, okay, we were baking in 1.7, 1.8, we're baking in 1.5 now, and that's why the stock price has changed in the last couple of weeks. And when you say baking in, um, there's an expectation that it could potentially be 1.7, 1.8. I think baked into the price based on a valuation, like, right, what would revenue have to be to derive this $9 billion valuation? Uh, I think there you can probably get to, like, what's really in this because it's already priced at the $9 billion. That's what Endeavor probably thinks is going to occur at the very least. And that's where I say baked in 1.5, the over or under promise over deliver the expectation um the the guidance could be that it would be higher higher and i have not heard nick guide to higher at all just that you know he's i think he was on record of saying the 1.5 but under promise over deliver was yeah. what he was looking to do mm-hmm. um if it comes in lower right i think you, it's hard to get to that 9 billion valuation um just from a revenue standpoint uh without real cost cutting or other revenue streams, revenue drivers. And we could talk about those because I think those are already in place. Certainly the PLEs are you say 9 one of them. Valuation. Are we talking about the market cap? The, the TKO, um, when that closes, it will value WWE. I know equity value around 9.3, but I thought the, from a, from a stock price equivalent, it would be around 9 billion. And it trades around. It's about seven and a half billion right now in, in market cap. So the equity value, 9 billion. And part of that would then be that market cap. How, how do you know how equity value is calculated? I don't. Equity value, yeah, um, would be the value yeah. placed on all equity and uh, assets, liabilities, so like everything includes debt. And probably because WWE did not have significant debt, increased the equity value because they didn't have any liabilities. So you view that favorably and come to a higher valuation, um, and certainly gave Endeavor opportunity to offload some of its debt to TKO. So equity value is it like market cap plus? Cash and assets. It's market cap, and we. <laughs> I went back and watched what Some, we did. Someone right is writing the email right now. I'm sure. Market cap would be shares outstanding times the price, and that's the public market. That's all the investors, all the shares outstanding. Equity Which is value basically would be 101 as it is right now times about 77 million base, basic shares. Right, it comes out to apparently about 7.6 billion dollars. We 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 can trust Google Finance here, although maybe you want to ask the. Uh, AI, what, what, what it might be, but, we, we um, just, we just look at the filing and say this is yes, number yes, yes. It's, it's usually around 77 million yeah. shares. Um, equity value would then look at assets and liabilities as well. So that includes debt and would come up to a different value. And I don't believe that there's a true science to that. I think there's a bit of art to that, which is what kind of multiple do you put on things? Um, and, and we've certain, certainly seen WWE use all different kind of EBITDA adjusted EBITDA numbers. So, um, that's, of my head in terms of the M&A transaction world. I'll, I'll look at my DMs later. I'm sure someone, someone will lecture me on, on what EV is. Uh, okay. I am not a financial expert. Okay. Um, <laughs> what else have we got? I, I guess that's – I'm skipping over the merchandise thing. Uh, so I don't know. I, I, we could talk about succession. Well, Unless you have let, me, let, me, let me go yes. back and make this kind of broader point and something I've been thinking about and wanted to kind of share as I was preparing for today. Um, there's a saying in business that your margin or your market share is my opportunity, right? When somebody runs away with um, an industry like the WWE did with 
pro wrestling, right? They are able to almost become a monopoly. They have the dominance in the market in terms of viewership, market share in terms of TV rights, um, and the market share of the TV rights, right? If you think of the total slice of the pie. Um, and here comes Tony Khan, right? That's my opportunity. I'm going to stand up my own wrestling promotion. I'm going to figure out ways to create value in the form of TV rights, which we saw after 2018, WWE had completely um, capitalized on. On the flip side of that, and where I kind of draw the parallels into pro wrestling, and certainly where we are now in terms of live event attendance, in terms of ratings, in terms of engagement, and and overall, um, I think, critical acclaim, is that WWE looked at the disruptor, and they said, well, what was the disruptor's playbook to be able to eat into our slice of the pie? Now they're now Lightshed's talking about them next to us. So how did how they get there? And they evaluated the playbook and they said, oh, they do interesting creative. They try to tell stories. Um, they push the talent that people seem to organically want to see. And it's harkens back to what Triple H, Paul Levesque, had done with NXT when NXT reached its peak. And I was reminded of that listening to um, the great guys at John and Way at Post Wrestling. They did a, uh, a throwback show uh, looking at Brooklyn. And I was the there peak. live for that. Yeah. Yeah. It, I had missed it because I had every Brooklyn show for like the first few I just had to be out of town on for some reason. Um, but peak NXT was a play on what was going on in the indies, right? What was resonating with fans? They started to bring in talent from those in those areas, those indies, those the promotions outside, and they started to feature them. And that worked. All of a sudden, what was getting critical acclaim outside of WWE was working for WWE as a as a niche, as an offering to bring those fans back. And you look at now what Triple H has been able to do since he's come into this creative control um, and whoever has control, whether it's perception, reality or not. Triple H obviously has his fingers on. Well, this Paul Levesque, Vince McMahon, or the Wizard of Oz, whoever's doing right. it is doing it. And we can say that. Would you agree? Paul is definitely more influential in the product that we are seeing on TV than he was when Vince was when he was frankly at home uh, and having uh, health issues. Right. So, as, as, as Jesse, when I, when, I, when I made that point last week, you know, it, during let's say July 2022 to through December 2022, that's the time where Triple H, you know, Paul Levesque had the most influence, I think, but he still has more influence now than he did before July course. 2022. At any point. It, and, and you can certainly see that what was working then and what proved to work in the case of um, Sami Zayn's popularity and in the case of the Bloodline storyline, um, in the case of the handling of Cody Rhodes, is certainly dominant now in, in what the offering is, what the content is. So I look at that and I say where in 2018 or whenever it was, the Tony Khan looked at the opportunity and said, OK, well, I'm going to use their um, stranglehold on the market as my opportunity – I think Triple H looked at his competitor, looked at the disruptor in the space, and they said, well, I'm going to use that playbook in order to win on my end. But the difference is when I win on my end, I already have that institutional power, that institutional scale, and it's that much easier to turn it around, you know, to, to basically get the success more quickly um, because they have all that institutional firepower with the brand, with the bigger audience that has always watched WWE. So implementing that playbook, what, what, the, what took a long time for the disruptor to do and what the disruptor is still trying to achieve is much more easily achieved by the institutional brand. And it was a matter of just looking over there and saying, hey, I'll borrow from that playbook and why not? And I think that's what we are seeing play out now. Um, and it's a very interesting time for both companies because they are both doing well. They are both taking their steps towards where they're going next. 
they're not comparable to me. They are in different parts of their life cycle. I know the fans like to compare the ratings. They like to compare the content. They like to say what about isms. The reality is one is a it was a startup that's now coming into its next stage of its life cycle. That's AEW. The other one is an institutional brand that many thought were on its heels, but has been able to borrow from that disruptor playbook in order to turn around things like live attendance and like ratings and get younger demo. And I think that's what's being played out here. And from a business case study standpoint, that to me has been fascinating over the last six, seven months. Okay. A couple things here. It's Nick Khan. Please. So you, you think that the WWE really, you know, looked at the, looked at what AEW did, which was disruptive and on its own scale successful and said, look at the things they're doing and we're going to learn from that. I guess my, my, my issue is that I don't, yep. I don't think that what AEW did was like revolutionary. Like, no, it wasn't. But it was let's, what... let's, 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 you know, I think it, I, for, for me, my, my, my perspective is always just that like Vince wanted to do things in a very specific way that matched yep. his personal taste more so than it matched the market taste, which he confused. And uh-huh. the, the reduction in his influence over the product is the key to everything. And I think that was very singularly Vince and maybe Vince's chosen yes men. I think in the absence of Vince, it allowed for people that I think knew better to do better. Um, I think that was always the opportunity at hand when Vince was um, you know, stepped away and, and was out of uh, control. And I don't, it's not that they looked over and they said, we're going to copy them. The reality is, a lot of was fans that like, like a proof my, of like, hey, look, this works. This can this convince. Yeah, so like that would convince Vince McMahon that like, well, I goddamn, I've got I've, I've got to give it to him. Then we've got to we've got to do things more the way that they do it. I, I mean, no, ex- but ex- I think that that's not yeah, what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Explain to me what you're saying. <laughs> what I'm saying is, I think it's undeniable. A lot of fans were turned off by where WWE was going under Vince's singular control and creative control. They explored avenues of alternatives, whether that was New Japan, whether that was Ring of Honor, whether that was ultimately AEW. And what was it that they were doing? How were they utilizing their stars? How were they telling stories that resonated with fans that were turning off Raw and SmackDown? Certainly not getting younger fans, although that can be argued it's just a matter of time before the the, the video on demand and the, and the social uh, network effect of it all took place. But Paul Heyman, Triple H... Even somebody like Bruce Pritchard, who is tied into Conrad Thompson, who certainly benefited from the success of an, of uh, StarCast and rode the, the wave of All In, the first one around, they had to have known where those fans were going and why. And while you can't convince Vince McMahon to get off of his Iron Fist rule, the minute the opportunity presented itself, they could start to try. And once the business metrics started to show the receipts, the proof that this might work, and all of a sudden, hey, look what we can do with PLEs. Look where we can go with Sami Zayn if we just consistently push Sami Zayn. Look where we can go with these talents if we just give them a bit more of the rub of, hey, we believe in them too. And, and in, that in, in has Vince's allowed defense, for success and in, and in defense of to your convince argument, Vince McMahon. He has, he's, he's a full-time employee now again. Mm-hmm. He's got an employment contract that's been disclosed. He did go to TV after the night after WrestleMania. Mm-hmm. He hasn't returned to TV. He's still involved in creative. I mean, you can read the reports from places like Fightful and we can draw our own conclusions about what the reality of the situation is. In any case, he's not as involved as he was a year ago at this time. There's always this initial 
reaction when somebody's out of something like, oh, it's all going to go terrible. I need to be there. If I'm not there, it's going to fall apart. And we saw that in their writings about, you know, their business disclosures. And, and uh, well, it was always if Vince McMahon is such a critical part of this company and without him, there's material impact, right? Okay, it was probably written by somebody not too far away from Vince McMahon as he was uh, <laughs> dictating this in his office. All of a sudden, TV ratings are up. All of a sudden, live attendance is starting to improve. We see that fourth quarter number from last year, profitability. All of a sudden, the company is going to get an equity value of $9.3 billion and trade at $100 a share, which was pie in the sky back in 2018 when it got to $100 a share. And Vince McMahon may look at it and say, hey, this isn't that bad. I may not agree with the creative. I don't have the same power I used to have, but I have a much more valuable business for it. I was able to create a much more successful transaction for it. And therefore, maybe it's not the worst thing in the world. I know that's hard to believe knowing all the things we know about Vince McMahon. But in business, money talks. And I don't think anyone expected a year and a half ago or two years ago for the company to be valued at what it was valued or to trade at the stock price it trades at. And all of a sudden, there's a lot more um, cultural uh, relevancy to a company that is now going to be partnered with uh, or be under the same umbrella as UFC, the power that they might have as a partnership. And so... That's business, um, and that might be a bit of a departure from the traditional thinking within the wrestling uh, community. I just want to give this a quick reality check because I've, I've been thinking, you know, at least I've heard some, some people say that, you know, well, WWE's popularity did have a turnaround. Did it have a turnaround before Vince actually left? And the scandal broke in the middle of June, almost a year ago now. Um, and we do see in June that SmackDown and Raw were up from the prior year, and Okay, well, it's being compared to the the prior year, which was the end of the Thunderdome era. So you would expect a a month with touring to do better than a, a month entirely in the Thunderdome, and it probably had a boost because maybe because of I mean cer- certainly when when Vince came out on TV on June seventeenth, I mean that that did a big rating. Riddle and Reigns also did a big rating. So, and if we looked at the months before. It was in, in months where it is being compared in the prior year to the Thunderdome. We've got some slight negatives here or a very slight positive. So but the, re- if you, the ratings if, do add up with that narrative that TV ratings improved after Vince's. And if you extrapolate this and just look at the trends of ratings over the last seven to 10 years, it's straight down. Any that's that's bit kind of, of what we're, sh- any we're trying bit of to show me now, right? Any bit of bobbing me out is a positive, And then any uptick from there is success. Um, and that happens to correspond with last summer. Yeah, that's kind of what I'm trying to show here in, in this green heading, the non-news cable originals, where they're mo- in almost every month, except for March for some reason. It's, it's mostly down, some positive. Uh, this month in May actually was flat, probably because basketball, I don't know. So, um, yeah. I, I like to look at the wrestling landscape with more of a business outlook and apply some business um, thinking to it, not get caught in the kind of tribalism and debating of each company versus each other. And, and whether you give all the well, credit you'll, to one you'll, person You'll never or get not. clicks that way. And I'm not looking to get clicks, right? I'm just a consumer of this who enjoys looking at the business side of it and speaking with you about it. And that's why I wanted to bring forth that kind of idea because I think it, if you look at these as case studies uh, independent of each other, um, yes, they borrow from each other quite a bit, and um, I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it's natural in a competitive industry. Okay. Um, have you? Do we, do we, any, anything else before I go to succession? Because succession's 
do you have anything else? And then I'll do super, a super chat. Um, do we have a super chat? We do or have not a super yet. chat. We do, we do. go chat. for it. Cause let All me right. see if I had anything else I wanted to put out okay. there while I was on with you. Dalmar says Meltzer made a claim that last weekend was the highest crossover between WWE and AEW pay-per-view. Do you think that holds some weight with the SmackDown number? Do I think it holds some weight with the SmackDown number? Um, I'm not sure what, what Delmar means by that. If you want to clarify that in the, in the chat, Delmar, go for it. Um, I but think I th- that that weekend had a very good, I think it was a very good weekend for pro wrestling. Um, I think whether you like both shows or not, I think the fact that wrestling dominated that maybe weekend. Maybe what Delmar is saying is that maybe some people who usually don't watch WWE tuned in to watch SmackDown, who maybe are more so AW viewers, maybe. Um, I think... So I think what, what what Dave reported is based on traditional pay-per-view sales. So we're talking about the people who are still buying W pay-per-views, which is like in the in the in the low thousands, right? And I'd be shocked. Is it low thousands? Do you know that? I think he's he reported the numbers. Someone okay, yeah, someone, that's shocking to me. Um, so is, is it shockingly high or low? I'm surprised there's more than a thousand still doing it. It's four dollars, but I understand. Um, who knows? It's just broadband access in rural areas. I don't if know you, what's happening. If you can buy a pay-per-view, do you not have the ability to get – okay. I, I, I digress. So <laughs> a, a, apparently, according to Dave, wherever he's getting this data from, maybe a, a certain cable provider or pay-per-view provider. In any case, apparently those people – there was more more overlap between the people who bought the Double or Nothing pay-per-view and the people who bought Night of Champions. Um I wouldn't put too much weight into this, especially if we're talking about a, a pretty small minority of the, the entire consumption of this PLE. Um, I think it's just, it, I think it's probably not that complicated. Uh, you have a champion, despite your creation of a new title out of old cloth, you have a champion that's very over and very well protected. You've got a good story that people are into, bloodline storyline. Mm-hmm. And you've got intrigue coming out of that pay-per-view about where Solo Sokova stands, why Jimmy did what he did, and, and people wanted an answer, and you promoted it as this big 1,000-day celebration. Mm-hmm. And look, look, look at the quarter-hour, well, the half-hour trends that we looked at earlier. It built and built and built to, to that last segment. And that's what people tuned in to see. Uh, and uh, Roman Reigns I, and the bull lines a draw. I, I did want to hit on two things real quick. Um, one is a trend that I've observed over the course of the year, this year, 2023, compared to 2022, and that is the ability for each company to keep the, um, I'll say the active uh, core audience, those who participate in whether it's online discussions or listen to um, podcasts or get involved in community um, message groups. They've been able to facilitate conversations in a productive way this year, whereas last year the conversations were very destructive. And you can go back to starting with last year, the Sasha and Naomi story and all the speculation. And, you know, everyone gets consumed with what's going on in a negative way, followed by Vince McMahon scandal breaking, followed by the palace intrigue of that. Certainly with Brawl out, you had palace intrigue and a lot of negative speculation. And a lot of that's fostered for clicks. Um, and if you follow anything I've ever tweeted, which is not entirely meant to be read serious, I don't really enjoy that. Um, it's a lot of just throwing things out there for their own, you know, for, for personal benefit of clicks, but it's destructive conversation. And what I've observed this year is that there's a bit more positive conversation. And I'll use two examples in the case of WWE, where you can disagree with it creatively or not, right? So I'm not talking about the critical acclaim, but the way the conversation has taken place about the draft and about the new world championship. 
And in both cases, it gave those outlets something to talk about and, and the, the, the audience, something to discuss. The discourse was about what the draft will mean and who's getting drafted where and what it could mean for the potential of the new world championship. And while it's all muddied and clouded at the end of the day and there is no real brand plan, nah, there is no real brand split per se in WWE um, or it's loose at best. It allowed for conversation and speculation about what would happen on screen and not what would happen off of screen. And I think that's a very good development for pro wrestling this year. Similarly with CM Punk, um, it went from CM Punk should never be back. We all hate CM Punk to when is he going to be announced for collision? And the slow build to when he's going to be announced for collision allowed for many in the community and in the wrestling podcast world to talk about it to their fans. And they let every show with it. And whether that's good or not, uh, I'll leave that for others to judge. But the conversation was moving towards something, which was his return, which, by the way, was inevitable. The guy was injured. He's going to come back. So now we were able to have a positive conversation about his return opposed to a negative conversation about his leaving. Um, so I thought that was one really interesting trend. The other is this notion of PLEs and the idea that they at some point may be all um, the rights fees, they're the site fees rather for the PLEs mm-hmm. and what that means for the wrestling business, uh, specifically WWE as a public company um, and their partnership with TK with uh, or partnership. They're soon to be merger with uh, Endeavor and TKO. And it gives me this idea of scaled revenue growth. And for a long time, I had kind of been critical of what I late stage capitalism attempts to throw your brand on anything. Let's get the credit cards going. Let's get the lotto tickets going. Let's get our brand on this, our brand on that. It's like, are you materially incrementally moving revenue that way? No. When you do that, though, when you are able to incrementally scale your revenue, like the case of the PLEs, right? Look what they're getting paid now to run a PLE. Look what they're getting paid dollars for Puerto Rico and for clash the castle, something from clash the castle. We don't know $50 million from kingdom. That's the outlier, right? That's the big one. But if you are able to all of a sudden drive millions of dollars from these events, San Antonio gave them something we don't know. You're scaling your revenue growth. You have to work. You don't have to work as hard. LA probably gave them something for WrestleMania. You don't have to work as hard to achieve incremental revenue growth. Likewise, in AEW, when you're able to run a stadium show, look at what that does on a revenue side, and it's one show. And how many shows, right? So the video game will be the same thing, and that's a big investment they've had to make. So that's, again, different stage company. They're making the big investment to hope to scale that revenue growth, bring in audiences. But it's that concept of getting to a point where you're able to drive more dollars with um, more efficient means. And I find that to be a fascinating trend emerging for both companies where they are in their respective places uh, over the last, um, you know, certainly this year, as we've seen in the last few months, as the rhetoric has kind of been about these PLEs and about the the uh, stadium show in, in Wembley. And I would say the, the stadium shows, both for WWE and AEW and, and the video game for AEW have something in common. And I think they're both a, a really good marketing value. I mean, the, the video game, I think, is a fan creator. You know, mm-hmm. it's... I've, I've said this before, like it, when I was training people, you, I would often hear stories about how, how'd you get into wrestling? Well, I started playing the video games or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that has a, a strong marketing value and fan creation value. And I think the stadium shows, in addition to, as Nick Khan has said, in, in addition to these localized shows being opportunities to bring in the executives and show them the product so they're not just like looking at WWE on paper, but seeing it in person, that's, a, that's an important opportunity. And I think it's a strong marketing opportunity to have 
the video of and the and the and the, the media and the images of like look at this huge crowd that we have, um, and that'll be AW's first chance to have that when they do the do the show in the UK with whatever it is more than sixty five thousand people there. Absolutely, and and each time they're able to. Um, get a better TV deal in a local market or each time they're able to prove to a local government that they deserve the, the site fee, right? I think we've always thought about the wrestling business as this selling tickets, selling pay-per-views, selling merchandise in the venues. And those are things that you really have to go hand-to-hand with the consumer on. And these are areas where you can that scale that revenue growth in ways that are much more B2B or working with governments. And um, it's the, the evolution the of, of wrestling. wrestling it's not, it's not prepared the analyst, the wrestling fan, to think about wrestling that way. They've, they've, they read wrestling books and they watch wrestling documentaries of, yeah. of, of even a recent era where it's about ticket sales and TV ratings and pay-per-view buys, and it's become more complicated. It is a multi-multi-billion dollar industry. I'm almost a, This is the evolution of business. This is the evolution of the pro wrestling business, and I think that in the next few years, it'll be interesting to hear all the... People who cover wrestling talking like this, I think, because it's obviously where it's headed. Um, and Nick Khan is a great steward for that. And Tony Khan has a great world view of what it's like in sports to understand what needs to happen in order to get his company that he started to where he wants it to go. I don't know the kid, but seems like a nice kid. Uh, it's, it's Nick Khan once said. Uh, so, okay. That's it? Let's We've do succession. Got, okay. Well, I've got to give everybody a, a big disclaimer here. An opportunity that we, if, if you have not seen... The last episode of Succession. And Can if I do you plan it? To, Can I do it? What? Go ahead, do it, and then I want to hit the punchline. If you, if you have not seen the last episode of Succession and you plan to, turn off the podcast now. We've, we're done talking <sighs> Fuck about Fuck off! Yes, as Logan Roy would say. Uh, we are going to talk about the last episode of Succession here. So you, there are going to be spoilers. You are going to have the episode spoiled for you if you've not seen it already. So turn <laughs> off the podcast now. Okay. Sorry for cursing, Brandon. It's, it's fine. Logan, Logan Roy swears a lot, uh, but he's dead now. Okay. Rest so who won succession? Tom Wamsgams won succession. Are there some ways in which Tom Wamsgams and Paul Levesque are somewhat similar? Would, would, would you agree with that analogy? I think it's pretty good. Keep going. Um, I, I, we, we, I just got some, some of the succession characters. Here. <laughs> um, who, so, I, I think there's a number of ways like in, that the politics of, of the show, the f- fictional show, um, seems like what's happened in WWE coincidentally in the last 12 months. Would you agree? Yeah, I, I think so, too. Um, I, I think there's a lot of parallels to this, uh, to the arc, right? The creative arc of both sh- both shows, uh, if you will. But, yeah, the, the palace intrigue in WWE, uh, certainly the children. Uh, the idea of the patriarch. Um, there was always that uh, obvious comparison, but as we saw things play out behind the scenes in WWE and then unfold in a transaction, and we saw how Succession um, played out in the fourth season, um, a lot of parallels there. I mean, my, my impression is that Logan did not want to give it to any of the kids. They, all, all of these people are sort of ruthless nihilists who wanted to keep the power for themselves and their their determination to not let anybody but themselves have the power is what led to no one except for Tom Lomskans <laughs> and that's well, getting it. And I think that's probably, I think there's, there's some similarities to my view in, in, you know, Vince 
basically having no successor and Stephanie is out now and, and Shane's been out of that picture for years. And Shane is kind of the Connor Roy to doing his own thing on the side. And I think Stephanie, Oh, that's who you think Connor Roy is. And I think Stephanie is an amalgamation oh. of, of, of the other three siblings. Um, See, I thought Connor Roy, I thought the, the natural comparison to me was Linda because they spent about $100 million to not even come close to public office, but I digress. Maybe, maybe, um, maybe Connor Roy is an amalgamation of, of <laughs> Shane and Linda with, with political aspirations. Sure. And uh, kind of being out of the picture. I, I um, felt bad for Shane. Uh, doesn't have any shares. Came back for one last pop before his dad sold the company. Tears his he, quads. Looked, he, he had shares. He had the same number of shares given to him as Stephanie did. No, but at and the point of the them. sale, he tried at the price. True. Tough, he appears to have liquidated luck. them in, in around 2014 or so. When you the know what the price was, was around 2014? Not Probably a, a tenth of what it is now or something. I think around $18. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yikes. And, um, and they complete this merge. Well, it was a merger, right? That they did in succession? They completed this merger. Yeah, they did do a merger. Yep, and that, and uh, I guess Matt that would make Matson like Ari Emanuel or something, right? You can see Logan saying, "When I go or when I'm done, I want to be swallowed whole. I want them to spit me back up, right?" And that was, you know, that's not the idea of handing, you know, giving the baton to the next. That's not passing it down generation to generation. That's somebody's going to take me on and they're going to swallow me whole. And we've heard Vince kind of, I think that's a Vince quote, and. Logan thought his children were not serious people. Um, Whoever takes me out, I want I want to ha- give indige- indigestion right. to or something like right. that. Yeah. Or some more graphic terms about spit me back up or something. Or I, I, that quote's great. Can you if we can find that? But certainly the three on the this slide here, um, Frank, Carl, and uh, Jerry. I think our natural uh, Frank, Michelle, and George. <laughs> but who's Nick Khan? I would say Nikon is mostly like Frank and Jerry, I guess. Yeah, he's in that camp. Um, there's a bit of Nikon is the um, one who grew up outside of the power, outside of the fame and fortune. I find that to be a little bit like Tom Wansgan. It wouldn't shock me if Nick is one of the big winners in all of the the WWE session. Um, but Hunter, the, the obvious comparison there is uh, Hunter and Tom, which I think is great. And... You know, and to, I, to be clear, let's just set it up. So mm-hmm. Tom is Tom wins. He becomes the CEO of the merged company because he has made it clear to Matson, who's the the new boss uh, post merger, that he's willing to be a yes man and do whatever he wants. Uh, you know, as, as long as long as you know he needs to be a pain sponge. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and he's he's basically a, a puppet CEO to. Uh, who's not going to challenge him. He's not going to be a threat to him and he's not going to stand in the way of Matson, you know, expressing his vision or whatever. Yeah. He's an appropriate person on the org chart to sit atop the, uh, the company. And, you know, similarly, Triple H will take criticisms for creative. That's usually what's lobbied at um, WWE on a regular basis in terms of its fans. So he will obviously be the pain sponge there. Um, there's also a bit of when they were within the, Within the family enterprise, right, Tom was willing to go to jail for Logan. And while I don't think Triple H was ever willing to do anything quite like that for Vince, though we don't know, um, sure he kept some secrets. And Triple H has been there since the 90s, early 90s. Like, he's been there a long time, through and, and through. There's a similarity that he married into the family. Tom married into exactly. the family. When, um, and willing to kind of be the one who will be exiled if need be in the event that Vince decides to sideline them and uh, what's best for, you know, the, 
the, the next generation, the children, the legacy um, is probably best the outs, for all. But he stayed the whole time. And that more recently, yes, him uh, being the one that remains in charge in WWE while Stephanie is out is similar to what is going to happen and what Shiv ultimately uh, decided. Cousin Greg Greg is uh, some combination of Kevin Dunn and Bruce Prichard, like these useful idiots who are just institutionalized in the business who are never going to get removed. Brian James or something. Brian James. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, (laughs) It's somebody who's got to be like a disciple of HBK. Yeah. The disgusting brothers. Yeah. Um. <laughs> DX. Um, degenerates. No, there's a lot of good parallels there. But I think ultimately, if I may, succession being a commentary on what a British writer thought of American corporate elite, that, that world, that ecosystem, is that oftentimes the Nepo babies are not serious people. They're not the ones to take over. They're not the ones to be in charge. They've never learned how to actually fight for anything. Yeah, and, and what you can the, say. One of the yeah. most memorable quotes, and maybe the most instructive one, is where he says, "Where he says to the kid, Logan says to the kids, mm-hmm. I love you, but you're not serious people. You're yeah. you're my kids, and I love you, and they've got. I mean, they're 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 fit to to have good jobs and stuff like that, mm-hmm. but but they're not fit to be the CEO of a major media company, right? And being the leader, being the head of an organization like that, like a like a the equivalent of a Fox News, which ATN was presented to be, or the equivalent of a Waste or Roco, which is think of like a Disney with all the parks, right? Like that is a job that very, very few people in the world are ever cut out for. And it's usually not because they started on third base. Sometimes it is, but oftentimes it's because they had to make it like they, you know, like we heard the origin story of, um, of Logan and how he came to be who he was. Um, there's something that has to be burning inside the belly, that usually doesn't exist when you're born with the silver spoon in hand. Um, and I think it's interesting as we parallel it to WWE that, you know, Nick Khan, I don't think comes from that background. Correct. Triple H did not come from that background. Um, and I think the people who ultimately steward WWE into a successful future are not going to be those who grew up um, behind the scenes. And that to me is a big takeaway in the WWE session parallel universe that has been created by many fans who like you know the show succession and we've talked about it and compared it over and over for the last like two years now uh the the vince quote this is from playboy magazine february 2001 when it's time for me to go i would like to be devoured by the biggest baddest carnivore that ever walked the face of the earth and then i'd like to give that son of i know shit i fucked it up again (laughs) And, and then i'd like that son of a bitch to get indigestion and vomit my remains back up that's a hell of a quote that's an all-time vince quote i like that enshrined okay um okay that's it that's all we've good got chat. um there'll be stuff on the patreon patreon.com slash wrestlenomics is coming a week we'll have more quarter hour reports we'll have um updates most likely monday maybe tuesday and thursday as we've been doing that in the last uh, couple of weeks so look for all of that and thanks and for i wouldn't I would encourage people to read those news updates that you've been doing. Uh, I want to give you compliments on them. They're very informative. They're very succinct. And they are insights to the business that are not rooted in tribalism and whataboutisms and comparisons that are just for fan fodder. Um, so people who do really enjoy WrestleNomics and really do enjoy understanding the business behind the business. Um, Brandon's now doing these uh, news reports and writings that are really good um, pieces of content. I think each, you know, the frequency that you're putting them out is great. 
So if, if you've subscribed before, it's the TV ratings report, but then on top of it, I'm writing some stuff about news, maybe some, some news notes, but then going into some bigger analysis and sometimes even breaking stories and things like uh, records requests and things like that. So look for that. And uh, I'll talk to everybody next time. Thanks to MJ from NJ for joining me. Thanks for having me. It was fun. Bye. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C.